Welcome to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're joined by Mark Owen Jones, who will be speaking about his book, Political Repression in Bahrain. We'll also hear from Drew Kinney, Tulane University, who'll talk about his article, Sharing Saddles, Oligarchs and Officers on Horseback in Egypt and Tunisia. And we'll finally, we'll also hear from Chad Raymond of Salve Regina, We'll be speaking about his article, Old Wine in a New Bottle, How to Teach the Comparative Politics of the Middle East with Fiction. This is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Drew Kinney of Tulane University uh, to talk about his article, Sharing Saddles, Oligarchs and Officers on Horseback in Egypt and Tunisia, which was just published by International Studies Quarterly. Uh, Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the article. Uh, what do you think the major contribution of this article is? Well, I make two chief contributions, one to the study of civil military relations, uh, in particular, the study of civilian control, and the other to the studies of democratization. This, the contribution to civilian control or the study of civilian control is, I think, its biggest contribution. And that's that you know, most studies of military politics tend to focus almost exclusively on the military. So when there's a coup, we, we, you know, we focus on the officers who seized power, who physically took over. But there's often civilians behind those officers. And so what I do is kind of flip the problem on its head and focus on civilians nearly exclusively and try to see if there's any connection between civilians and the officers. And so what I find is that in Egypt, civilians were divided and uh, formed alliances, in particular the liberal elites formed alliances with the officers in order to uh, oust the Muslim Brotherhood. And in Tunisia, elites were united and this allowed them to um, push the military out of politics or make sure that the military wouldn't intervene in politics. And this contributed to the democratization process ultimately. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit then. So why do you, why do you think that uh, civilians and a particular type of civilian elite is so important in this story? Civilians have power that's often overlooked in the study of civil military relations. In particular, civilians have ideational power. They, they can legitimate an officer's attempt to seize power. You know, it's hard to imagine officers stepping in with fatigues, you know, standing at a podium typically reserved for someone in a suit, uh, a politician, and giving a speech. So in order to do that, they need some sort of ideational power. They need legitimacy to be able to rule a country or to step in and make a man on horseback argument where they're coming in to be the national savior. And so what civilians offer uh, officers, and what I say in my book project as well, is that you know um, they offer them the, this dangerous combination of the sword and the pen. Officers don't just have weapons, they also have this ide ideational backing from civilian politicians. You know, civilians can mobilize crowds, civilians, can make arguments and op-eds. Civilians often have money. And in the case of sharing saddles, I talk extensively about economic elites in particular mm -hmm. who um, offered office space and funded uh, the modern movement in, in um, you know, helping them get signs and um, helping them with a petition campaign. You know, there's 
all sorts of things that civilians can contribute to a military coup. So it's, you know, what I, what I emphasize is that weapons aren't the only source of power um, right. in a military coup. And so, and you talk about the importance of uh, polarization. So where you see a polarized a civilian elite, um, it plays out very differently from when you have uh, a more unified um, uh, civilian elite. Where, where do you see this polarization as coming from? Uh, you talk, as you said, a lot about the economic interests. So explain how you think about polarization and its sources. The way that I think about polarization is um, it, it's a little bit deeper than um, policy polarization or something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I view polarization as um, threats to rival elites' very existence. So when one elite threatens to displace an elite from their state patronage networks or their position in, a, in the state. So in the case of Egypt, you have the set of elites who are connected to the Mubarak regime in one way or another, either parties that are receiving patronage under the system or able to stay in power or economic elites who are receiving development contracts and the like. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood comes along and you know they don't really try to change the system necessarily, but there are some attempts to um, replace existing elites with um, positions for Muslim Brotherhood members. Um, and, uh, when that happens, you start to see alliances with officers. And we wouldn't expect this in the study of military politics. We tend to expect civilians to want to maintain control over officers and keep the officers out of politics. But in some situations, and what I argue is that in a polarized system, uh, officers and um, certain segments of the civilian elite see each other more as friends than two rival segments of the civilian elite would see each other as friends. So that situation, you, you tend to see these alliances form between officers and civilian elites. And it was interesting, and you argue that, uh, that Morsi actually kind of did things right by the book in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of getting a pact uh, with the military, with, with the, the SCAF, and, um, you know, kind of actually gracefully uh, easing out the senior leadership of the SCAF and uh, bring, and getting it, making a deal with Sisi. But since he hadn't read your article yet, he didn't realize that uh, he was uh, focused on the wrong thing. Yeah, that's, that's right. I wish, I wish that I had published the article uh, <laughs> seven years ago. No, yeah, he, he sort of follows uh, the traditional thinking in civil military relations literature. And, you know, I, I wondered when I was writing the article, uh, if there was some way to find out if he had read about transitions in Latin America, because it seemed like he was actually following civil military relations literature and that he made this sort of pacted transition with the army, you know, uh, gives the SCAF, um, uh, relinquishes budgetary oversight to SCAF, allows him to keep the billion dollars for the, the peace treaty with Israel from the U.S. to the, the billion dollar aid to the military. Uh, he really doesn't provide any civilian oversight, uh, relinquishes control over promotions, all of the things that we tend to think um, help the military gracefully leave power and, you know, um, ensure that they're not going to be prosecuted. All of these things that in the, the literature we call guaranteeing military prerogatives or guaranteeing military interests, yet it doesn't work. 
within a year and a half, the military is on the verge of seizing power. And that is because um, Morsi's civilian rivals are upset about some of the maneuvers he's making to try to get the Muslim Brotherhood more entrenched in the economy and more entrenched in politics. And at that point, they start looking for military allies to reestablish um, some version of the Mubarak era state. So what's one of the things which is interesting about, the, about your reading of the Egyptian case is that a lot of the articles and, and a lot of the analysis of it focuses more on the street, on Tahrir, on the activists and um, kind of Morsi's confrontation with the revolution, revolutionary activists. Whereas your focus, you don't ignore them, but your focus is much more on these economic oligarchs and uh, you know, the, the real economic elites, which uh, at least in my reading of your piece seem like the real players here. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's interesting that you put it that way. I don't ignore the street. I kind of choose to focus solely on the elites and it's just kind of uh, the way that I see the case. You know, I, it kind of seems to me that uh, Morsi um, has this opportunity to galvanize the street, to really bring forces of the revolution and the youth, the liberals, um, Islamists together. And the pact that he makes with the military, interestingly enough, and I say this in the article, really divides the street. Mm -hmm. And in my reading, it seems like that provides Morsi's civilian elite rivals, the economic oligarchs, the economic elites, their opportunity to start their machinations against Morsi's presidency. If the revolution, in my reading, had stayed united, if the street had, had stayed united, if Morsi had you know, appealed to the revolution rather than appealing directly to the military's prerogatives, there might have been less opportunity for, the, for his civilian elite rivals to undermine his regime and ultimately seize power. Well, let's flip it over to Tunisia then um, and, and how you see things playing out differently in Tunisia. I mean, certainly there were high levels of social polarization there as well, but the outcome was different. So tell us why you, why you think that happened. My reading of the Tunisian case is the economic oligarchs under uh, Ben Ali had not benefited like Egyptian elites had under Mubarak. So the, Mubar the, the Ben Ali state was, for lack of a better term, predatory. Um, you know, economic elites expect some level of um, defense of their private property and their, their assets from the state. And in Ben Ali's regime, they didn't get that. Ben Ali would institute random taxes, um, like the National Fund, where elites were forced to contribute, and that was on top of their existing taxes. There were uh, uh, threats from the security services in the factories. There were um, sort of arbitrary um, regulations. And really, the Ben Ali state favored a very, very narrow clique of elites. And so when the transition happens, economic elites are doing everything they can, especially as participants in the quartet, the civil society quartet, um, represented by Utica in alliance with the labor union, the mm -hmm. UGPT. And they're trying to ensure that the transition moves forward in every way possible even during the crisis of 2013, when there was seemingly a threat that the military might intervene. And so how does that then play out in terms of the role of the military? So in my interviews with 
Tunisians, especially some prominent members of the, the Utica Quartet, there was apparently a threat. And of course, you know, there's the, the idea in Tunisia is that the military is apolitical and it won't intervene. But according to some of my contacts, there was a real threat. And in fact, they, they brought that threat into meetings with the Anada party and used the, the idea that the military might intervene as kind of a bludgeon to ensure that they would cooperate, that the Anada party would cooperate with secular elites and business elites to move the transition forward. In fact, one of my contacts basically said, um, you know, no, there will never be a coup in Tunisia. We are a civil state, but the military certainly would have stepped in to help us move the transition forward and get rid of Anaba. Mm -hmm. So it amounted to a coup, but not in name. And the idea was that, you know, if Anaba isn't going to cooperate with us and make sure that we have this democracy, then we'll just have the military get rid of them. So I guess last thing then is, you know, so if, if there's going to be a one uh, 30 second takeaway from the article that scholars of coups and democratic transitions uh, should know, what would it be? We have to focus much more on civilian politics to understand military coups. The best example that I can offer is based on the recent news in Myanmar. And if you look at a Twitter feed or if you look um, online at news articles, the main headlines will read, the military seizes power. But it takes a little, only a little bit of digging to find out that a party known as the Union Solidarity and Development Party is heavily involved with the military and just lost recent elections. And so it is entirely possible that there is some civil military coalition in Myanmar. And that's the sort of the point of sharing saddles is that we can't focus teleologically on the officer that steps in and seizes power and trace backward why that officer wanted to be in power. We have to look at the entire civilian landscape to really fully understand the interests and motivations behind coups. Well, great. We've been speaking with Drew Kinney of uh, Tulane University about his article, Sharing Saddles, Oligarchs and Officers on Horseback in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate it. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Chad Raymond of Salve Regina University to talk about his new article, Old Wine in a New Bottle, How to Teach the Comparative Politics of the Middle East with Fiction, which was just published in the Journal of Political Science Education. Uh, Chad, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article. What motivated you to write this and what is the main contribution? So the origins of this particular article actually stem from a co-authored piece that I published in the same, I'm um, sorry, that I published in um, Arab Studies Quarterly with a colleague of mine, Dr. Sally Goma. Now, uh, we each have sort of home faculty appointments in our own separate traditional academic disciplinary departments, but we uh, are also in an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary department. And her specialty is English literature, mine is political science. Um, she kind of got me intrigued by the possibility of using novels mm -hmm. to teach uh, political science courses, and in this case, uh, comparative politics. So uh, what, what was the novel that you chose to, uh, to experiment with? So the novel that I used was um, In the Country of Men by Hisham Matar. 
this is the story of a young boy growing up in 1970s Libya uh, when it was ruled by Muammar Gaddafi. And the book, the novel takes the form of what in literature circles is referred to as a Bildungsroman. In other words, a coming of age story. So this character, the boy, is looking at all of the different uh, male figures around him and trying to figure out which one has the best sort of masculine role that he should then emulate uh, as he's trying to figure out his way into adulthood. And it follows him as he leaves the country? Yeah, toward the end of the novel, he is basically sent into exile uh, by his parents. Uh, after his father, who has been a dissident mm -hmm. um, against uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, and who was arrested and tortured and then later released, uh, the, the parents basically make the decision that the boy, their son, has no future in Libya and he is sent out of the country. So then how do you, how do you then make this applicable to um, political science? So I use this novel as an illustration of the three main bodies of theory in comparative politics. And, and those are the rational actor model, uh, cultural perspective, and the, the structural approach. So rational actor, um, I basically compare events in the novel to uh, Albert Hirschman's uh, mm -hmm. work, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. Um, for the cultural perspective, I draw upon uh, a lot of different uh, studies on uh, perceptions of, let's say, traditional gender roles in the Middle East. Um, and then for the structural approach, I'm basically looking at the, the rentier petro state, uh, which is a framework that's been used by a lot of people in comparative politics over the years. So let's walk through those. Uh, so how does the rational actor model apply to the novel? So uh, the rational actor model uh, applies basically through the decision-making process used by uh, different adult characters, uh, primarily uh, the boy's parents. Mm -hmm. So the, both of these adults have to make a choice about how they're going to cope with this dictatorial repressive regime. regime. And the father, he chooses voice. He's, he's basically voicing his opposition to the regime uh, at great peril to himself and also his family. Whereas his wife, the boy's mother, uh, she prefers exit because she's thinking of her son's future for the most part. And that's why she wants him out of the country because she knows that once he becomes a teenager, he'll probably be conscripted into the military. And then, you know, who knows what his fate might be. Um, so that's, that's the rational actor framework. And then the cultural one was quite interesting, the way that you, the, the way that you uh, describe it. Yeah, for the, the cultural uh, approach, um, I look at uh, the boy, and by the way, the, the name of the main character, the boy in this novel is Suleiman. So I look at Suleiman's mother, and her personal history is one in which she was viewed by her elder male relatives of, uh, as committing a, a, a very heinous cultural transgression by basically uh, socializing quite innocently 
uh, with a boy when she was in her young teens and uh, her elder male relatives basically force her into marriage with a much older man uh, mm -hmm. whose name is Faraj. Uh, and this is Suleiman's uh, father. So her background in the novel is one in which she is basically constrained by these cultural norms. And that plays into her political uh, response or reaction to uh, what's happening in the present day in the novel. And that lets you talk about gender norms and, and, yes. and the like. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the, the structural uh, political economy. Uh, yeah, um, so Libya, as I'm sure your listeners know, is, is or was, uh, still is, um, a petroleum exporting state. Um, oil revenues are, are, are captured by the state, or in, in the case of Libya in 1979, captured by a state run by a brutal dictator. Um, and this means that there is absolutely no democratic accountability uh, in Libya's political system. So uh, the state is able to finance itself. Uh, it uses this money to uh, uh, preserve Muammar Gaddafi's control through an elaborate you know, internal security service. Um, yet at the same time, uh, and this is something that is characteristic of, of these kinds of states, uh, in, uh, you know, both in the Middle East and other parts of the world, uh, even though there's this huge windfall of revenue coming in, uh, it is essentially misspent um, because in the novel, there are descriptions of the neighborhood that Suleiman the boy lives in. And it's basically an unfinished construction project, uh, probably something that was started with grand proclamations of, you know, this will be the, the crowning glory of our country, a modern community, and yet the streets are unpaved and the buildings are falling apart. Uh, so these kinds of uh, settings in the novel give a good depiction of what life is like in this particular um, kind of state. So then how, how did this work out in the classroom then? Uh, did students respond well to this? Uh, yeah, they did. So um, I should give a little bit of background of the kinds of students that, that I and my colleagues teach. Uh, Salve Regina University is quite small. There are only about 2,000 undergrads. And of these, there are very few political science majors. So mm -hmm. usually, well, I should say probably uh, almost every time I'm teaching a classroom in which the majority of the students are not political science majors. And some have even never taken a political science course before. And my course might be the only one they ever take while they're in college. So I basically have to um, both impart sort of disciplinary knowledge, but also train them in certain skills that are applicable in whatever you know, field they're studying or whatever career path they might go into after college. So I focus on um, trying to get students to understand parts of the world that might be completely alien to them right. or that they might have already developed negative stereotypes about. So the first part of this article in JPSE, um, I cite some evidence about how uh, given the current 
you know, generation of college students that we have coming into our classrooms, um, they have been constantly exposed to a particular uh, view of the Middle East um, that, at least in my opinion, uh, is heavily skewed toward you know, the Middle East has always been a place of violent conflict. It's filled with terrorists and uh, poverty and, you know, all sorts of other bad things. And the way in which people live their lives in a day-to-day -day fashion kind of has gotten lost. Um, so this novel kind of presents them with this. Yes, it's fictional, uh, but the author is Libyan. Uh, he grew up in, in Libya. So it's a fairly good representation of what was going on in the country at the time. So I can then kind of grab students' attention with this, you know, this boy who's trying to figure out how to grow up and become a man, which is something that many of the students themselves have kind of gone through uh, in their own lives so they can sympathize with this character and, and the problems that he's facing in the novel. And then that kind of opens the door to using a novel to demonstrate these theories and comparative politics. And then at the same time, kind of hopefully break through some of these negative stereotypes that they might have. And then you pair the, uh, the novel with, uh, with readings from the theories? Yeah, so I'll, I'll assign, for example, for example uh, Larry Diamond had an article in uh, Journal of Democracy in 2010, um, something, uh, the title, something like, uh, why are there no right. democracies in the Middle East? I'm probably, you know, I'm, I'm probably not totally accurate on the title, but, um, but this is, a, you know, a structural explanation um, of uh, authoritarianism in the region. And so students, through writing assignments, they're making these connections between what you know, political science scholars are writing about and what they're uh, seeing happen in this novel. Well, it sounds really great. Uh, we've been speaking with Chad Raymond of Salve Regina University uh, about his new article, uh, How to Teach the Comparative Politics of the Middle East with Fiction that was just published in the Journal of Political Science Education. Chad, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was great being here with you. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on our book segment today, we're joined by Mark Owen Jones of Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha, Qatar. Uh, we're talking about his new book, Political Repression in Bahrain, just released by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I know we've talked about it for a while. We've threatened this podcast, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's finally nice to be on, on it. Yeah, let's let's talk about your book. Um, why don't we start? Just uh, tell us a little bit about the origins of the book and what you think the primary contribution of the book is going to be. Well, the book started. Well, it had its roots in 2011 when I started my thesis, and obviously 2011 was the year. Well, I suppose the second year of the Arab uprising, but the first year uh, that the Arab uprising really hit Bahrain. Um, and I'm not going to lie, there's a personal element to it. I grew up in Bahrain, and I was always interested in the politics. And I'd started out writing my PhD on the use of social media as a tool of surveillance. Uh, but over the course of the, the early months of my PhD and the first two years, uh, I was doing a lot of writing. And, and soon I was, uh, I was banned from going back to Bahrain. And so I kind of had to adopt a different approach because I had planned to do interviews and 
do more boots on the ground type research. Uh, but I became very interested in the use of repression generally because I've been looking at social media as a tool of repression. I was watching constant videos of police brutality. I was reading the history of Bahrain to, to such an extent that I became increasingly aware that there was a, a long history of this kind of repression. So I thought it made sense given my new, my newly kind of, my new status as someone who couldn't go to Bahrain to, to maximize the use of the historical archives in addition to some of the social media research I was doing. Mm -hmm. So what that made me do was, was delve into the archives, a lot of the India office records, um, a lot of the, uh, the sort of nation, the national archives in Kew in London, um, you know, and, and, and particularly the era around the 1970s, where there was a transition from, from um, British overall imperial rule to, to Bahraini independence. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of delved into these documents and I was, you know, I was confronted with a, a lot of new information that I had not found. And I think part of this was because I was looking at through this prism of political repression, which was a relatively new approach to studying um, a Gulf country. I mean, people have looked at human rights abuses and people have looked at authoritarianism, but political repression actually has this rich literature behind it. And it's quite a cross-disciplinary literature going from political science to criminology um, to mm -hmm. social science more generally. Um, so there was a lot of work doing in trying to create this interesting template and lens of repression to look through. But by doing that, it gave me, when I looked at the historical data, the empirical data and the, the current data, um, I think a new and refreshing perspective to have on Bahrain. And, and what it did was, was show me that repression, it changes throughout history. You can have changes in methods and tactics of repression of how states try to stop social movements. But depending on the country, you can see continuity. I mean, one of the big questions that comes out of the repression literature is, for example, how does the personality of those in power impact on the nature of repression, the type of repression? So for example, it became very clear that you know, the personal sectarian disposition of one uh, ruling family member would perhaps impact the way in which the Shia were treated in Bahrain, and this certainly happened, or the um, imperial disposition and the imperial prejudices, the colonial orientalist prejudices, a British colonial officer might also impact on the nature of recruitment in the police that would then have a knock-on impact on how the police reacted in times of uh, uh, confronting protesters. So all these kind of little nuances I thought were really interesting. Um, so, you know, because it's a kind of interpretive history, there's, there's no overarching thesis per se, but if I was to offer one, it would be that uh, repression has obviously changed over time in Bahrain, but there was a distinctive uh, shift in the nature of political repression before independence in 1970 to after independence. Um, and, and, and this coincided with the time of decreasing British overrule and then increasing Saudi involvement in Bahrain's internal affairs. That's what I would say the general argument is of the book. Great. Well, so one of the things which is which will really strike the reader, like uh, you know, right from the beginning, is just the the level of detail and uh, you know the nuance that you bring to looking at all the different forms that repression takes. And uh, maybe you could walk us through that a little bit. Um, you know, what, what you mean by repression and the types of uh, forms that you saw playing out uh, in in the Bahraini context. So political repression itself is it's it's a relatively contested uh, term. And again, like many terms in, in academia, there is the, the sort of large, you, you know, there's a sc sliding scale of, of specificness um, from sort of very specific forms of oppression. Some interpret oppression merely as the role the coercive apparatus plays, such as the police, in um, resisting movements on the ground. 
versus the broader stratified levels of how opposition and social movements more broadly are contained. Um, and that is obviously far more expansive. And for the purpose of this study, I thought having a, a broader lens to look at repression was more interesting because if you, think, if you think about it, I mean, we know that control, forms of control are complex in any society. So it would, um, I think it would be remiss to only look at one specific form of oppression, such as police repression. That would be interesting in itself. I'm not denying that. But I'm just saying it wasn't as interesting because we know from the colonial literature, we know from political science that the manner of, of the way in which states rule um, is often more nuanced than just brute force. So I thought it would be a more interesting kind of way of looking at it. And you've so got a, the, whole, a whole range of these, uh, ranging from the legal to the urban geography to employment to education. Um, and, and so this is a very kind of big picture structural concept of what a repression is. It's almost the entire way that the political system is structured. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, so the, the kind of four categories, I mean, I distilled numbers of, you know, going through the literature, there was there was multiple forms of how, how states kind of control the population, but I distilled all these major strands, I thought, into four categories, which the book is organized around. One of them is political statecraft. Um, so political statecraft is the, you know, it can include things like restricting immigration, exile, uh, screening employees from sensitive jobs, uh, various deprivations and sanctions, uh, mass layoffs, you know, um, rewards as well, giving jobs, increasing salaries. Uh, and selective reform, like removing grievances in order to 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 take the steam out or the wind out of the sails of social movements. Statecraft is one, and then there's personal integrity violations, which is your more familiar form of political oppression: the coercion, the use of torture, the use of incarceration. Um, those those aspects. Then there's legal repression, which I thought was an interesting category because the growth of legal instruments across the past hundred years in in sort of in Bahrain has been is very interesting to see from a more form of tribal rule to the proliferation of laws and regulations that dictate how and when opposition can meet, form and organize. And then finally, I thought um, information control was another category. Um, this is information control. I mean, fundamentally what that is, is the access of a population to forms of information. So at a very basic level, it's the socialization through education, for example. What are populations exposed to that will What's the thought diet that they're exposed to that will determine their choices in life, even their political allegiances, to the, the notion of surveillance, to the notion of censorship, all those kind of things. So these kind of four categories come together to organize the book. So each chapter, there's a chapter on information control, a chapter on political statecraft, on legal repression and personal integrity violations. Each goes through uh, chronologically um, the history of Bahrain post 1920s to to see the history of Bahrain through the lens of that particular form of repression. And so some of these forms uh, are, they're encoded into law, others mm. are quite arbitrary. Um, and do you see patterns uh, there over history in terms of how much of this is actually hardwired into the constitution and state institutions versus how much of it is, uh, you know, kind of an ad hoc response to particular challenges or events? Yeah, I think there's much of this is hardwired. I think what you've seen going back as far as the 1920s is the notion of um, political justice, for example. So the use of political justice is when law is subverted to the, to the desires of the dominant social group. There was an example, I think, early in the 19th, several examples. But I remember when the British were discussing how to deal with one particular problem of a, 
a growing sort of nationalist movement, they entertained at the time the idea of using some of the tribal laws, the traditional tribal laws, um, to deal with a certain problem because they were seen as more arbitrary. But at the same time, the British were pressing for the formalization of laws to give this idea of a penal code. But however, regardless of those things, law has always been subverted in some form of national emergency in Bahrain, right? When it came to, in 1956, for example, there were laws which just introduced ad hoc um, emergency laws to allow the government to um, crush a kind of um, a nationalistic uprising. Um, we saw the incorporation of this arbitrariness in the 1980s in state security law, which essentially gave the government um, massive scope to arrest people if those people were deemed to be a threat to national security. That law exi essentially existed until 2001 when the constitution came into play. And whilst the constitution was lauded, the constitution had a caveat that allowed for the declaration of a state of national safety, which was essentially martial law. And now this ability to declare the state of national safety essentially voided any of the protections guaranteed by the constitution, right? So regardless of the proliferation of legal protections to the citizens, there's always been this element of arbitrariness that can be invoked in times of crisis, and it has been invoked. And I think that's a really important thing to remember because the proliferation of law has not really prevented the ruling family, the Al-Khalifa regime, from, from actually um, imposing their ability to, to repress political opposition. Well, and that's actually worth taking a step back on is that uh, one of the, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, controversial arguments in the book is that essentially the origins of this, uh, this system of political repression is simply that uh, the Al-Khalifa had to do this to stay in power and that they basically, everything follows from that core decision uh, or that core need uh, for them to stay in power at any cost. Yeah, um, I think, I think that's, that's very much true. I mean, what we see, um, I, I would even make an argument that what we saw in the 1920s, we saw the British uh, depose or essentially depose or depose Isa al-Khalifa, uh, who was the ruler and put in place his son, who was seen as more malleable. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of opposition from another side of the, the ruling family, Abdul al-Khalifa. Um, and this side of the family had been repressing the indigenous Bahana population for some time to, to the point that the British got irritated because it was provoking Persia to make complaints to the League of Nations. And so what we see here, we saw this, you see um, a ruling family who's been uh, continually attacking the, uh, the Bahana Shia population in Bahrain. And now this trait of behavior goes on through the 30s, 40s and 50s. You see a pattern of behavior. You know, even in the 50s, there's an interesting example where Charles Belgrave, who was the British political advisor between 25 and 56 and who wrote a diary every day, he was in the 50s, he went round to the rulers, to a Bahana family's house to force them or to encourage them not to make a complaint against the Sheikh's sons who were driving around and arbitrarily attacking Bahana citizens. Now this, you know, was happening for decades. And one of the arguments they put forward is that to an extent, the British reforms post 1920s put a bit of a restraint on this arbitrary repression or oppression of the, the Bahana population. But once, in the 1970s, once independence happened, these kind of gloves came off and there was a reassertion of this more um, uh, slightly sectarian, uh, you know, form of governance. Uh, and this was basically achieved through the empowerment of the late prime minister, Sheikh Khalifa bin Salman, who then was in power for, for, for decades, right? So this notion of continuity, I don't think is particularly surprising in a place where you've had 
rulers who've, who've governed for long periods of time uh, in a very small place um, without really any remedy to, to fix any sort of animosity towards between the, the tribal rulers and the, the indigenous population. Because the whole problem of, or the whole interesting thing about Bahrain is that British protection and the discovery of oil created this huge distance between the ruling family and the governed. So there was never any real integration, I think, between those two populations, which I think really underpinned this, this level of continued animosity. Let's pick up on a theme you just raised there, which is uh, the, the transition from uh, British to uh, Saudi uh, kind of being the primary external actor involved in uh, supporting uh, and protecting the Al-Khalifa in Bahrain. Mm. Um, you know, so what changes when the British pull away and uh, Bahrain turns to Saudi Arabia uh, to, to fill that role? Yeah, so this is uh, one of the most interesting thing, changes, I think, that happened in the, in the 20th century. The changes were seen as almost immediate. Uh, I think one of the most striking uh, changes that affected the more overt forms of political oppression was the changes in the police. Up to that point, the head of the criminal investigation department, or the CID, was uh, Ian Henderson, who's, who's gained a reputation as being, um, he, he used to be in Kenya, he was helped put down the Mau Mau uprising, and then he was brought to Bahrain to try and infiltrate leftist networks. Um, so he was a very influential policeman. And then the head of the regular police was also a British guy called Jim Bell. At the time, there were other Brits in the police. I think one of the, um, the striking things is almost immediately after independence, you see uh, the British embassy in Bahrain complaining how, or rather Ian Henderson complaining how him and Jim Bell, the, the other British head of police, had been sidelined that the prime minister, that they used to have regular meetings with the prime minister, for example, but now they were being sidelined and weren't having meetings with him. Increasingly, they were left out of major decisions about how to deal with uh, aspects of insurrection. And this became even more uh, the case towards the, Ira uh, the Iranian revolution. So what you're seeing, what became very obvious was the sidelining of, of the British police in the security apparatus and frequently complaints about how the Bahraini uh, security forces were dealing with internal dissent, particularly when that internal dissent was believed to be uh, related to uh, sectarianism. Mm -hmm. So this was, to me, was a very striking kind of thing. And, you know, and it starts becoming invasive. You know, it's, um, there was talk of, for example, Saudi money um, going to Al Khalifa sheikhs in order to get them on board uh, for, for particular Saudi foreign policy positions. This included, for example, the fact that Bahrain had a national assembly um, at, the, at the beginning of the 1970s, but there was obviously pressure from Saudi and certain members of the Al Khalifa to, to end that democratic experiment because they were worried it would spill over and create insurrection in the eastern province. So, you know, for, for what you see is really of Saudi security concern about what's going on in Bahrain. You know, Bahrain's liberalization in a political sense was seen as a threat to Saudi. And this uh, was a constant theme that was evident post 1970s. Well, this is a work of history, but I think that, um, you know, a lot of people would be interested in hearing about 2011 and the repression of, uh, of, of that uprising. And maybe you could say a little bit about how the response, the repressive response, uh, compared to earlier periods in Bahraini history. What was new and what was, you know, kind of expected or predictable in the way Bahrain uh, and Al-Khalifa worked to, uh, to crush the 2000 mm. uprising? I think um, it was it was an one of the, the the striking things is that you see a certain playbook emerge. I mean, what we did see the regime act relatively brutally quite quickly in 2011, and this has happened before. 
But I think for me, one of the most striking examples was the buying of time. One of the arguments you hear coming out of Bahrain in the first part of the 2011 was that the, um, the opposition, well, Al-Wafaq, but you know, the majority opposition, they missed a big opportunity of uh, reconciliation that was being put forward by the crown prince. They squandered that opportunity. And because of that squandering that the, 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 you know, the um, security forces came in and cleared the, the uprising. But for me, from looking at the 1950s and other times, I think the government never had any intention of uh, agreeing to the demands put forward by the opposition. They had no intention of, quote unquote, democratizing further. My argument is that the, the limits of democratization in Bahrain have been reached. And because of that, there's no, there's very little wiggle room. And we've seen historically that the Bahrain the government will offer these talks, offer these um, ideas and, and dangle this notion of reconciliation in order to buy time and in order to organize and reorganize the coercive apparatus into, into a way that puts them in a better and stronger position, a more advantageous position. So for me, that was one of the most striking things. And, and, and I sort of discounted this argument. One of the other arguments was that hardliners took charge. You know, they took, they took um, the place of the crown prince who was seen as a reformer. And once the hardliners take charge, then things change. But I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that the hardliners aren't always firmly in control whenever there's a perceived threat to the social order. You know, there's no evidence to suggest that the prime minister or the Khawalid, other members of the royal court who are notably conservative, uh, are, are, you know, would have ever allowed there to be any further political reform or democratization. Uh, but this is how it's often framed. It's framed as an exceptional moment. And whilst the uprising itself was, of course, exceptional, I think the way it was dealt with was was not exceptional at all, uh, and that the government knew exactly what they were doing. And you know, the 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 rest of it was very familiar: uh, excessive police brutality, torture, um, the promise of political reform. I think one of the the, the strangest or the most interesting comparisons is if we look at 1954 and 1956, there was two similar uprisings on a smaller scale, but each one actually mirrored very uh, what happened in 2011 in 1954. A number of people were shot by the Bahraini police and killed. The British launched a legal investigation into it. They recommended that there be changes and reforms and police training. Those things never happened. We saw the same thing again in 1956. There was another uh, investigation into what happened, very much like the investigation we saw in 2011. It made recommendations, but this time it just blamed the population. But the whole point of these recommendations, these investigations, was to try and create some sort of national reconciliation to make it seem like the government was serious about mending uh, and reforming. And we saw the same with the BICI report in 2011. We saw this, this big international committee of legal experts write to this uh, comprehensive and, and a, a very important report on the uprising. And the government promised to make lots of reforms. And then we saw the government essentially renege on those promises. The, the, the BICI report was a means of just showing the international community or giving the illusion that they were serious about tackling human rights abuses, uh, when in reality, it was business as usual. So we literally see these kind of the same elements of the same playbook over and over again. But I will say that the 2011 uprising, quantitatively speaking, has been, if we, if we go up to the present day, the most brutal in Bahrain's history. And that's one of the things, if you track political repression, you can see certain changes in, in, in how things happen, right? For example, deaths in custody by torture, they didn't really occur between, before 1971. But after 1971, we see uh, the increase in deaths in custody by torture, right? So it's interesting that you actually see specific changes in, in forms of repression. So then 
there's one part of this that um, is, is, I think it's part of your current work uh, beyond the uh, beyond the book itself, but there's a, a long chapter on this, which is absolutely fascinating, which is one thing which is new, which is social media and the role yep. that that played in kind of the, not in, in the repression of the protest, but also their disruption and also the mobilization of pro-regime uh, kind of civilians, uh, constituencies, whatever you might call it. So tell us a little bit about that and, and how that played played out in terms of you know, maybe new forms of political repression. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I would say that's the most significant juncture in, in, in terms of 2011 was the rise of mobile technology and social media, uh, which was key. And you have to remember at the beginning of 2011, I think liberation technology idea and the notion that um, social media would, would, would quote unquote bring democracy to the region was, was more prevalent. Obviously people were still critical, but that was a very prevalent paradigm. And, and it was understandable at the beginning of 2011, there was much hope and, and people and activists were using social media and, and, and the internet and forums to, to organize, to mobilize, to network. And I think that should never be forgotten. But what I thought was fascinating, what became clear to me as I started my PhD was that the, the longer we got into 2011, the, the, the clearer it was that social media was also a very sinister effect. And I think this was interesting because Bahrain was almost like a bellwether for what would happen in the rest of the region. You know, I think one of the most striking aspects of um, 2011 was when there was this hashtag and the hashtag was Unite Bahrain or Unite BH. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about this hashtag, it was started by a Bahraini, sort of middle-class Bahraini. The idea was that people would go on Twitter and social media and then write what united Bahrainis. You know, at a time of division, this, the idea of this was to sort of create some healing. And one of the slogans that came out of this was, this hashtag was, no Sunni, no Shia, just Bahraini. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating about this slogan is that the, the person who started this trend was then arrested. It was then rumored that uh, people who had paraphernalia of no Sunni, no Shia, just Bahraini or Unite BH were being stopped at checkpoints and ridiculed um, or, or in some cases harassed and tortured uh, purely because this idea of unity was very threatening to the regime. You know, I think uh, Fuad Khouri always said that the most threatening thing to the Bahraini regime was when Sunni and Shia come together to oppose the regime. Mm -hmm. So this idea of unity was problematic. And there was actually a unity chain going from the Pearl Roundabout, you know, the, the sort of spiritual home of the uprising to the uh, Al-Fatah Mosque, where there was a pro-government rally that you had people joining hands all the way uh, this long distance, right? So there was this kind of sense of unity, but that was deliberately disrupted by the regime. And social media after that point became a, a means of sort of rounding up perceived opposition. Um, so expressions, I think, of solidarity and, and cross-class, cross-sect encounter online were discouraged. And then you had this very divisive, toxic atmosphere spilling out. And, and one of the big things to come out of 2011 was a, was a Twitter account called Haraghom, which was, translates as the one that burns them. It was this pro-government vigilante account that would do the most atrocious things. Um, wh what would happen is that anyone, and this again ties in with people's naivety at the time about social media. Right, right. People often, for example, went to the Pearl Roundabout, not because they were political, but because you know, it was a, an interesting national moment. People would go there, there was a bit of a carnival atmosphere. So people, anyone who'd had photos taken by the Pearl Roundabout might have put them on Facebook or other social media. People who were sympathetic to the government or maybe agents of the state, we don't know, would then screenshot those, send them to this Twitter account called Haragum. He would tweet out these pictures of Bahrainis uh, doing whatever at the Pearl Roundabout, saying, uh, who is this traitor? What's their phone number? What's their name? What's their job? And then people would reply, 
with those details, and then these things would be circulated. And soon this account had tens of thousands of followers. So you had this sort of cyber vigilantism where anyone seen as being part, part, partaking in the movement or even sympathetic to it was, uh, was basically named and shamed online. Uh, you know, I remember speaking to one person who, once they were named by this account, they packed their bag up and slept by the door because they, they were expecting the police to come and raid them and they didn't want the police to come in and wake their wife and kids uh, when they took them away. And this, this account was even mentioned in the BICA reports as having broken both Bahraini law and international law. Um, and again, you know, there was, no, there was no consequence for this account, even though it had broken local law, which again highlights the point that when the social order is threatened, the legal order is broken in order to do that, or it's subverted. Um, so that was a classic example of how it was kind of utilized. But then there's also the spyware and the more advanced, sophisticated stuff. We know that the repression you know, it's, 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 I think it's incorrect to look at repression as just the action of a state. There's always assemblages involved. You know, we, we had European companies like Gamma International selling uh, Finn Fisher, Finn Spy software to the Bahraini government. This is a form of software that is probably familiar to a lot of listeners now that once it infects your computer, can record your screen, it can record your keystrokes, and record your Skype calls or your video camera. This was sent to activists uh, through various means, various forms of social engineering. Um, you know, there was the, the government essentially found numbers of ways to utilize social media and the internet in order to kind of um, basically um, try and crush the uprising. And there's even evidence to suggest, for example, that the, the government were creating, were incentivizing sectarian rhetoric online uh, in order to promote polarization in society. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the range of tactics that were being utilized uh, on the internet were, were actually were huge. I think um, all of us who were active uh, uh, in the early yes. spring, er, er, early Arab uprisings, I think we all remember that uh, Bahrain really stood out. That um, you know where you had all of these other uh, you know countries and movements where social media was this kind of mobilizational place. Bahrain turned toxic so quickly; it became almost impossible to uh, tweet anything about Bahrain without being deluged with trolls and hostile messages. And it was really the first place that you saw something which became quite familiar later. Yeah, I think I remember there being one particular quote. I think someone said, I don't know if it's a journalist, like maybe Greg Karlstrom, he said, Bahrain has by far the hardest working Twitter trolls that I've ever come across. <laughs> um, so they gained a reputation pretty quickly, uh, which is interesting for such a small country, right? It was, it was quite interesting. Let me ask mm -hmm. uh, um, one, one last question. Um, uh, yeah. since we're uh, running short on time. Um, you know, so People who you know look at Bahrain or, for that matter, a number of other countries in the Gulf and elsewhere, you know they'll often talk about uh, democracy reform, you know ways to mm. uh, you know to ease ease the repression, to uh, promote uh, counter sectarianization and that sort of thing. Reading your book, it's kind of hard to imagine any form of reform or democratization that might really be able to dent these uh, deeply wired structures of repression. So is that right? Or do you see ways that, th that this could be changed? Yeah, I, I mean, this is the ultimate thing. I think without, I mean, obviously I'm cynical and pessimistic, but uh, I don't mean to write off democracy, of course. But what is clear in, in Bahrain is that the structures of democracy that have taken place have always been specifically designed in order to ensure the continued ascendancy of the Al-Khalifa. I mean, this happened in 1975, and it was quite specifically talked about in, in correspondence between the British and the Bahrainis. It was very clear that the, 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 the amount of power would lie with the executive. 
And when Parliament proved troublesome, uh, it was dissolved. You know, when they refused to ratify the state security law, they were just dissolved. In 2001, the original promise in the National Action Charter was that there would be a unicameral parliament that was uh, elected, all elected. In reality, what happened? They created a bicameral parliament with an, an appointed upper house appointed by the king, uh, a constitution in which the king retains the power to create a state of national safety and other such things. So all we're seeing is uh, are, are these kind of talking shops that do give people some form of ability to discuss things. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily fundamental democracy. I think that's more of a reflection of a, a public sphere of civil society. The ability to discuss things without significant executive power or influence on the executive is, is not a, a, a high quality democracy to use the, that kind of nomenclature. And you know, I think in order for that to change, there would have to be a significant uh, change in the nature of Bahrain as a country. And I think this is why the book is so negative. You know, there was one quote I remember from a British official that it was revolution in Bahrain will be impossible so long as the kingdom of Saudi remains intact. And really this, this is saying that, and this applied also when the British were the overrulers. Bahrain is so small and as, as a result, relatively weak and sandwiched between Iran and Saudi that it doesn't really have sovereignty. It will always be, uh, it will always require some sort of suzerain, some sort of protector. And because of that, protectors foreign policy will always take precedence. So for in order for Bahrain to have, I think, a substantial form of democratic change, it needs to, its protector needs to be uh, a, a, a government or regime who also believes in democratization, but truly believes in it. And I think that's why it's so negative, is that, you know, so long as Bahrain is allied to UAE and Saudi, and I can't see that changing, I don't think democracy is going to happen, not in a good quality sense. Well, on that, uh, on that uh, optimistic note, uh, we've been speaking uh, with Mark Owen Jones about his new Cambridge University Press book, uh, Political Repression in Bahrain. Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks very much, Mark. It was a pleasure.